one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 530 for the week of Monday, September 23rd, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, how you doing? It's been a heck of a week. Can't wait to get started. Oh, yes, indeed. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. All right, short, simple, and to the point. So let's get things going then right away, and let's begin with an upcoming launch. And the next big launch, at least manned, is coming up this Wednesday, and that is September 25th. And that is out of the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. That is the launch of the Soyuz TMA-10M. Scheduled to launch at 20.58 GMT, which is 4.58 p.m. Eastern Time. It will be bringing up a three-member crew that will be, and again, as I did last week, we'll probably butcher the names. We have Russian Commander Oleg Kotov and rookies on this mission. In fact, two of them, Sergei Ryazansky and NASA astronaut Mike Hopkins. And they are, once again, going to be taking the quick route to the International Space Station, making it in about four orbits, with docking scheduled for 10.58 p.m. Eastern Time. They will join the three members already on board the station, that's Commander Fyodor Yurchenkin, as well as Karen Nyberg and Luca Parmitano, to make up the Expedition 37 crew aboard the ISS. Well, it looks like uh, ISS is going to be a busy place. Um, they've, they've got uh, the new crew coming on board, and uh, uh, all will be right with the world. I'm just kind of wondering, though, if they found the, the root cause of what happened uh, to the landing on the other Soyuz that came in uh, when, that we had discussed here last week, where you know, they just basically lost all telemetry and all the screens went out. So I'm kind of wondering if, you know, they've, they've kind of discovered what that problem was and decided it wasn't uh, an issue for this particular flight or if they're just going to go ahead, roll the dice and say, well, it was a one-time thing and, and go for it. Uh, or was, was this Soyuz just simply too far along the pipeline to even you know, do anything about and Russ Cosmos and, and NASA, I guess, decided that, uh, all was right with the world, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna go with uh, with a launch here. So uh, hoping that uh, that that little problem doesn't rear its ugly head again. But uh, it's good to see that the uh, the ISS is again uh, being that little port in the sky, so to speak, that uh, 
uh, folks are visiting and it's still busy and it's still being utilized uh, to, I hope, to the fullest. So to the, uh, to the new crew and, and uh, hopefully it'll, it'll yield a lot of science our way. Again, uh, we'll be watching that uh, on Wednesday with uh, great anticipation. That's going to be happening again. So we're, I think, what, about 4.30 uh, uh, Eastern Daylight Time here in the U.S.? Correct, 4.58 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, which is 20.58 GMT. See, we're getting better. And <laughs> That's very true. And I have to say, uh, one thing that I did see, I just... Um, checked really quickly thanks to google and i did find a report from upi uh which states that the head of the russian space agency denied that ever happening <laughs> oh boy you've got to be kidding me <laughs> okay nope. you've got the you've got the whole crew saying that everything went every, that the, everything went blank they lost tm they've got nothing there and now you've got Roscosmos saying nothing to see here. Well, <laughs> did I hear that right? Here's the quote by Vladimir Popovkin, who is in charge over there. He said, "Quote: It wasn't a blind landing." And then explaining that Mission Control simply switched off an information display in the landing module of the Soyuz TMA-08M. Quote: Two dates simply overlapped in a program, and we had to turn off the information display so that the readings would not be patchy on the screen. The cosmonaut still had enough readings to complete the landing procedure without problems, he then said. Okay, so uh, we, we deliberately turned the, the, the dashboard light out on your, your car's dashboard in the middle of the night, but don't worry about it! <laughs> oh, boy. So, okay. yeah, th there's your update that you were looking for. And by the way, just yeah. as a note, this was uh, published September 13th, so it's apparently a while ago, and we missed it. Yeah, thank, uh, thanks for for uh, for delivering that, Sawyer. But but wow, just that's incomprehensible. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, even after Vinogradov went and talked to the media about it, uh, yeah, he said nope. Uh, he's he's no wrong. Oh, I I I, I said it last week, and I'm going to say it again tonight. <laughs> Hey, Congress, please fund commercial crew now. Anyway, I'm off my soapbox. So, yeah, that is scheduled for Wednesday, and that is the Soyuz. But there is another vehicle that's currently up there that should have been docked to the space station at this point, but is not because of this Wednesday docking, as well as another minor problem. Gene? Well, as you pointed out, Sawyer, the uh, International Space Station is becoming a very busy place. And uh, also uh, that uh, we've also discovered as a result, spaceflight again is hard and uh, stuff kind of sort of happens. And that's what we encountered uh, this past week uh, with uh, the Cygnus spacecraft. With Cygnus is the uh, is a is a automated cargo vessel that is being uh, sent to the International Space Station. It's builder. It was designed by uh, Orbital Sciences here in the United States. Uh, has several other contractors and so on. But uh, the the launch went very well on September 18th at about uh, 10:50. 58 in the morning and uh was 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 clockwork I and mean, uh, you couldn't have asked for any better uh the mission was unfolding quite nicely up until uh the uh the good ship uh 
G. David Lowe, which is named for uh, the late astronaut G. David Lowe, who uh, had worked for Orbital and was uh, instrumental in getting uh, this particular uh, program going and, and instrumental in the design of the Cygnus. And Orbital has a tradition of naming their spacecraft after individuals that have you know made a made a genuine impact and they decided to uh name the first cygnus spacecraft after uh essentially one of its chief designers but everything was going really really well uh in fact orbital was posting uh some you know really good updates that were about the flight uh then um well Cygnus decided that it was going to go ahead and throw a little bit of a curveball at us. Um, one of the on-orbit uh, updates that I'm looking at, uh, which was dated September 22nd, uh, about 1.30 in the morning, said, uh, well, the spacecraft tried to go ahead and contact the ISS, and they found some, well, let's just say some data values uh, they didn't like. And Cygnus just simply decided, since it didn't like these dated values, to just basically, well, stop talking to the ISS. Uh, so they had to go ahead, figure out what the heck was going on. Now, keep in mind, too, we were supposed to dock with the ISS um, on Sunday, uh, this past Sunday. And this was just to make sure that things were going to continue to go well. Well, this data discrepancy kind of sort of threw a, a curveball at us. So the folks over at Orbital and over at Dulles who were monitoring the flight went ahead, worked up a patch really well, burned the midnight oil, got this patch together, tested it, works fine. Uh, and they were all set to try to go ahead and uh, uh, make a, a, a birthing attempt Tonight, actually, well, actually, tonight and tomorrow morning, uh, it's it's uh, Monday, September 23rd, as we record this, and uh, a, uh, a docking attempt was going to be made on the during the wee hours of September 24th. Um, well, this morning it was announced that well, maybe we ought to just go ahead and step back a little bit and take a breather because we do have. As you pointed out in the last segment, Sawyer, a uh, Soyuz spacecraft with three uh, three new crewmen coming up, and uh, we want to make sure that the road is clear for uh, for Soyuz to properly dock and and get to um, uh, get to the International Space Station. Another thing too, and this was also said by uh, by Frank Culbertson, uh, that. You know, the crew, the team here at Orbital had been working around the clock to get this patch together and test it and make sure that this thing really, really worked. And, it, you know, let's give them time to kind of sort of rest and make sure that uh, when we get to do this approach that everybody's well rested and alert and because uh, it, it's really, really important that this this happen and, and you know, it, it comes off right. And that's what we want to make sure here, that Cygnus is all set to go and is able to go ahead and deliver its cargo. And this will give that team a chance to go ahead and rest up uh, before that, that objective is uh, is made. So um, the earliest possible docking that the good ship G. David Lowe can make on, uh, on the International Space Station uh, will be uh, on Saturday sometime. Now, uh, or Orbital didn't exactly put the timetable together or post it just yet, 
as we go to record this. I'm sure there'll be some announcements as they come along during the week. For those of you who are interested in keeping track of what's going on with uh, the Cygnus mission, you can go to the Orbital website, www.orbital.com forward slash Antares dash Cygnus. And uh, uh, that's where, where uh, Orbital Sciences is posting all of their information. Um, I'm going to rewind the clock a little bit before we, we continue here. And... Um, uh, reflect back on the uh, post-launch uh, news conference that was uh, done after after the successful launch of Antares and uh, and the successful deploy of Cygnus in in orbit. And um, a lot of you know, of course, there was a lot of smiles in the room, and there there should be because uh, uh, again, we've basically defied the odds and made spaceflight look easy with the with that uh, climb uphill. And uh, uh, the folks on the dais, I believe it was NASA's uh, Robert Lightfoot, um, NASA's Alan Lindemoyer, and uh, uh, Orbital Sciences uh, Frank Culbertson, himself a former astronaut, um, were talking about uh, the launch and so on. And yeah, you know, unfortunately, our dear frog made a made an appearance in the in the inter- in the uh, press conference. There, a couple questions about the wildlife and so on and what's being done and, and all that. But there was, there was one comment that Frank Culbertson made. He, he was asked first about um, what he had hoped uh, the next generation was going to go ahead and take away from all of this. And his comments just kind of sort of, well, they sat in my head all week and it, it they echo a lot of what we have said here in the past um and well without further ado Sawyer why don't you go ahead and run that clip for me please and uh and we'll go ahead and uh and listen to Frank Culbertson in his own words because he he really hit the nail on the head about this whole thing so uh let's go ahead and run that please Science, technology, engineering, math, uh, I think, are the keys to the future success of the United States. And our ability to motivate students today, young and older students, to be interested in that and to, and to take that challenge of staying with math when it gets hard, of, of reading about science as you learn to read, and, and, and then being curious about the rest of the world, makes a big difference in how successful we're going to be as a country and how successful that generation is going to be. And they won't learn that until they're our age. Uh, we in, uh, in industry and in NASA work really hard to try to get the word out of what we're doing. And we do press conferences like this so that that's part of the education process. And then there's, the, I mean, Leland Melvin and the guys are working really hard to get the word out, as are Barry Bineski and the people in our company, to, to make sure people know what we're doing and why and how they can be involved in it. But you all are a key part of that, too, and we depend on you to report it accurately and enthusiastically and, and in a way that inspires people to read more about it and learn more about it. So I really appreciate so many of you being here today and listening to what we have to say, and I am confident that the, the message you're going to pass on is going to reflect exactly what we've said and, and is going to be positive, motivational, and, and supportive of what we're doing as a country in spaceflight. Human spaceflight itself depends on humans being involved, and, and we need your support in that also. And when it's hard, you've got to stick with us. When, when the budget 
comes down, you got to stick with us. And when there's a lot of other things going on, you need to put us in perspective because we're not always the most important thing that's going on. But come back to us when things calm down. Um, This is the future of the country, and continuing our presence on the International Space Station is critical to the United States maintaining its leadership in space. If we give up on the space station and we quit sending cargo in and we don't support people going up there and we unman it, it'll be two generations before we get Americans into space again on a regular basis. So we have to keep it going. It's that important. If we want to go beyond low Earth orbit, go back to the moon, go to Mars, go to asteroids, whatever, we have to keep the space station going because that's where we're learning how to live in space, how to survive a difficult environment, and how to manage it. Managing it, the operations, is one of the hardest things. It's exciting to go do it, but we as a country know how, have to know how to manage it cost-effectively, efficiently, and safely. And so we really appreciate you all getting that message out there. Sorry, I didn't mean to get on that big a soapbox. I think the most chilling thing he said, though, is the fact that if we lose the ISS, it's probably going to be another, what, two generations before we have another permanent outpost in in orbit like the International Space Station. And that that comment just, you know, sent a a shiver down my spine. And, and it kind of really put the whole thing in the proper perspective and uh, Mark, you've kind of sort of said the same thing uh, in some respects that that keeping a presence in, in low Earth orbit is critical, and and we can still learn a lot from doing that. We're learning a lot right now from trying to manage the International Space Station. We've never had to manage a large complex like this before, and vehicles like the SpaceX Dragon, like like the uh, the Orbital Sciences Cygnus, are going to help. Uh, and and be a critical part of that that management process and be a critical component of all that. But um, again, it, it, it you know Culbertson really really hit the nail on the head when he said that uh, this is indeed the future, and we've got to nurture that future. That means we've got to get more kids involved in science and technology and engineering and mathematics. And Sawyer, you're playing a part of that with. Uh, your participation over at the uh, the Challenger Center, and so are a few other uh, folks that I can think of right offhand. Libby Norcross as well, also working at the Challenger Center, and a few other folks that I know that are doing some really good STEM stuff. Um, you know, you guys are on the forefront of that, and uh, you know we've really we've really got to keep that going, or else uh, uh, we are, as a country are just really not going to have a future. And uh, I I couldn't have put it more elegantly uh, than Frank Culbertson did in in those words. So uh hats off to uh to to uh to Frank for for being such a you know he said it far better than I could. So I and I just had to go ahead and run that. So thank you for uh letting me uh indulge you folks for a little bit. Well I think that's two huge points in one. You know, I could see how they're linked, but that's two big things. One STEM education and getting the word out about it. It's also partly what we're doing here is spreading the enthusiasm about what's going on in the world of space. Although it, it seems like all we're talking about is the doom and gloom, and it seems like what most people focus on is the doom and gloom of the space program and funding and budgets and disasters and stuff. You know, there's still a lot of good going on in the space program with Soyuz launching and Cygnus, so that even though the issue, it's private space, it's a whole new world. So, you know, that's a huge thing on its own, number one. 
that we need to get the word out, encourage these people to go into STEM education, because then they'll be educated enough to, number two, see the potential of what we're doing in space, including the ISS. And I, I thought that was interesting how basically stark he was and to the point that if we don't keep the ISS up and going, then we're not going anywhere anytime soon. And I, I can see where he's coming from. I mean, the space station is a lot of management, and it's also the fact that it's been managed for over 10 years now constantly with humans on board. And if we're talking long duration, I mean, 10, 11, 12, so however many years it lasts, that's long duration if I ever say so. So that way a two-year trip to Mars doesn't seem that difficult if we've been doing this for how long now? 12 years? More? Exactly, Sawyer. And again, there's a lot of people that are still on... Uh, you know, really, really still on the, on the, on the front lines, if you will, and trying to entice more, uh, more, uh, kids to, to look at the, look at science as a career, look at mathematics and engineering and, and, and really say that even if you don't go into spaceflight, even if you don't end up, you know, working for Orbital or working for SpaceX or, uh, you know, Sierra Nevada or, or Boeing or, or, uh, you know, Virgin Galactic or any of the, uh, the other folks, uh, that I, that, you know, name, I could be here all night saying their names. Um, even if you don't end up there and you end up somewhere else in a, in a, you know, a, a, an engineering discipline, you're still being a high technologist. It's still critical. And, uh, again, folks you know, getting the word out, uh, and getting it out accurately, which is something you know, I'd like to think we try to do uh, here on a on a weekly basis. And uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping that uh, uh, we're we're doing we're doing good by uh, by the listeners and by uh, by the industry. And I want to thank Frank Culbertson for uh, for pointing that out. Uh, but uh, again, you know, our, th- this whole thing is is just so critical to the nation's future. And again, I, I could not have put it more elegantly than than he did. All right, so very strong words indeed, and I think it's time for us now to step off of our soapboxes, just like Frank did, and end round number one. And we will now begin our second trip around the table, and for this one. We're going to the Red Planet. If we're talking about amazing accomplishments, yeah, in case you forgot, uh, we kind of have a rover on Mars right now named Curiosity, the Mars Science Laboratory. And if you might remember, a while back, there was a report of a possibility, and this was all possibility because there were these rumors going around that maybe there was a huge announcement, a huge discovery. And there was the possibility that they have found methane on Mars, which methane would have been a huge, huge part of the building blocks of life and could have been big for finding life. Well, the official results are in, and it turns out those measurements were wrong. The Curiosity rover data has concluded that the Martian atmosphere, in fact, contains no methane, which is a big dash to some of the hopes of finding any life on the Red Planet. Now, if you'll recall, the instrument was called the SAM, the Sample Analysis at Mars instrument. It was the largest of the ten instruments aboard Curiosity, and it kept taking in air from the atmosphere through the first six times or so, and through a couple of months, and uh, they thought that they had found methane. 
However, one of the initial things when they said at the very beginning is that there's a possibility that the methane that it is detecting could have been brought from Earth. Because although it's in a clean room and although they do their best to protect it from contamination, nothing's perfect. And it turns out that is very likely to be the case. So it's not good news, but it's news. Well, okay, to, to put this in, in the proper perspective methane is sort of one of the byproducts of 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 life if you will and it was hoped that maybe just maybe there might have been something going on on the red planet right now uh that that doesn't necessarily mean that this you know it might mean that mars right now may be sterile we don't know there's still possibilities for at some point in time, whether whether or not Mars did harbor life, and there's still that that possibility there. Um, it just means that there's there may not be anything going on right now. Uh, yeah, so we know that Mars was a much wetter place. We know Mars had you know there was the possibility that maybe at some point in time. There might have been something there, but um, I guess you know maybe in this instance there isn't. Uh, but again, it's still a finding, and it's still a critical building block for you know learning more about the uh, the, the learning more about uh, the Martian environment, and learning also possibly how to manage the Martian environment going forward. And how would a uh, a crew possibly manage the Martian environment going forward? Because if they did find traces of methane, that might mean that, you know, again, there might be something percolating over there. And it actually could, well, if if we do plan a trip for the to the to the Red Planet, it could actually kind of sort of complicate things. Um, if if we know that there's something actually there, uh, so who knows? Um, I'm still. I've I've said this on this program a couple of times, but I'm still in the of the uh, the Carl Sagan school of thought that if uh, Mars is found to be, uh, you know, harboring some form of life, even if they are just tiny microbes, I think we should do nothing. I think we should just, you know, Mars, in my opinion, would have belonged to the Martians, even if they were microbes. Um, in this case, maybe there aren't any right now. And uh, uh, it means that possibly Mars might be wide open for uh, for future development, but we're talking, you know, maybe 50, 60, 70 years down the line. We're not talking, you know, tomorrow. Um, but it's still a critical, you know, what, what we've learned today is still critical. And uh, uh, it doesn't mean that we're, you know, just going to stop exploring Mars because there's, you know, the possibility of life isn't right now isn't there. Uh, it, there, however, maybe at some point in in the past it did have it. It's just we can't find those traces of methane right now. So, you know, we're, we're still on our way to Mount, up the up the uh, to the summit of Mount Sharp. We still don't know what we're going to find there. Uh, it'll still be an interesting ride, regardless, and uh, we're going to still find out more about the Martian environment and. Uh, that, that's the whole point to go ahead and send these robots ahead of us to see how they, what they can find out about this environment. So then that when we finally show up, we kind of got a 
good lay of the land and uh, can can understand what's happening. Exactly. And, uh, you know, as much as it's not good news that there's no methane, it's still, like you mentioned earlier, it's still good science. And uh, they're still working on it, though. Scientists plan more observations to increase the fidelity of the data and seek methane concentrations well below one part per billion, according to NASA and from SpaceFlightNow.com. So they're still working on it. Well, speaking of the Mars Curiosity rover... It's fueled by something called plutonium-238, which if you've listened to the show before, we have talked a lot about, and we will talk more about. Gene? Yeah. Um, Sawyer, you kind of hit it right on the head. Um, The uh, radioisotope thermal uh, electric generator, or RTG, that's on board Curiosity, uh, is being powered by, well, Russian plutonium-238. Mark, this is a topic that uh, you've brought up several times, and uh, we've been bringing it up every now and again here on this program since I believe uh, uh, before uh, Curiosity left this world and went on to uh, to visit Mars. Well, unfortunately, it's in the news again, and uh, not for the right reasons. Now, we reported here back in March of this year that the Department of Energy was going to go ahead and continue to go ahead and make the uh, this element that is absolutely critical for powering these uh, these RTGs. And we haven't made uh, plutonium two thirty eight here in this country in a long time. Essentially, I believe uh, plutonium two thirty eight is actually a byproduct um, of uh, plutonium two thirty nine, which is actually you know. You know, fissionable material for for a nuclear for a nuclear bomb, but uh, plutonium two thirty eight cannot be used in a nuclear um, uh, device, so or or nuclear explosion. So, however, its decay can go ahead and and keep something going and keep something warm and keep something powered up, and that's what. Uh, uh, it, it's being used for it's it's been leveraged here in this country for a very long time uh the voyager spacecraft also have rtgs on board they're both powered by rtgs and you see how long they've been operating uh, curiosity could also have an extraordinary long life as a as as a uh byproduct of using an rtg Problem is right now our supply of plutonium two thirty eight is dwindling, um, and uh, it's just simply called inside the industry and inside uh, planetary exploration as uh, quote the problem close quote. In an article uh, presented on Wired dot com, uh, the country's scientific stockpile is only about. Um, well, 36 pounds, and to put that into some kind of light here, uh, there's about 10 pounds of the material on board the Morris Science Laboratory rover right now. And um, what's left, according to the article, has already been kind of divvied up, and um, we're not even too sure you know, how much of this this is left and going to be uh, this material is going to be around. Uh, for very much longer. Um, and uh, it's a crisis that's been kind of sort of looming over planetary exploration for quite some time. 
And now it's, well, for lack of a better phrase, the, the chickens have come home to roost. Uh, and, uh, in an article that was posted, too, on the issue on uh, the Planetary Society website, production indeed has started. But uh, according to the website here, it's not going to uh, full production until about 2019. And even then, it's only going to produce about uh, 1.5 kilograms a year. Uh, it, it basically not enough to meet the future demands of going to of sending probes to the outer solar system of you know possibly sending a lander out to Europa and and uh, and Titan and all these other interesting places. Um, it's a scary situation and and we really don't have a plan for dealing with it. Now we do have the Juno spacecraft that's being sent out there. Um, it, it's using, you know, it, it's it's using a uh, uh, an interesting set of uh, solar panels and solar arrays, or at a large set to, to power itself. Um, but uh, it, that's not going to work if you're going to go ahead and plan another rover or another lander or, or something like that. Now we've got the Mars 2020 mission coming up. And you would kind of sort of think that, yeah, you would want about another, you know, 10 pounds of this stuff on board that to power that rover. So you can understand the problem and where it's going and going. And the threat is that if this continues to go down this present path, uh, planetary exploration, as we know it, could theoretically grind to a halt um, because we don't have... The, the the you know we don't have anything to power this RTG now is that going to force us maybe to come up with alternatives to the RTG maybe but right now there isn't anything over the horizon that would be a viable alternative to the RTG so this is this is a problem and it, it could theoretically really really put a well yeah, throw a, the proverbial monkey wrench into uh, planetary exploration going forward. Yeah, you might be able to solve the problem, or at least the problem with a with an orbiter um, using larger solar panels. But what do you do with a rover? What do you do with a with a lander that's going to stay for any amount of time? Um, maybe on Mars you don't need you know the the art the proverbial RTG for a lander maybe or you could go back to smaller rovers like we have with uh with opportunity to kind of sort of run the run the show but um for other more far out vehicles going to titan say or or europa or or you know further out into the solar system we're gonna have a problem and uh it's a problem that's going to hit us in the face quite hard and we're not too sure how to deal with this just yet so uh it's it's going to be again a situation we're going to keep our eyes on i'm going to throw this out to the panel and uh kind of sort of you know figure out you know before we you know kind of shine the ugly light uh, on who's what's going on and 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 so on uh, any ideas what possibly we might be able to do to mitigate the issue when you take a look at the um, list of missions that were fueled in one fashion or another with radioisotope power systems, which, by the way, surprisingly, and I can't find a detailed reference to it, 
but gene it also includes spirit and opportunity and i believe there they use plutonium to uh, keep circuits to keep electronics uh at a you know a more stable arm temperature but the apollo mission the surface experiments had radioisotope power systems cassini galileo uh, curiosity you mentioned already new horizons coming up uh, launched and en route uh, Nimbus 3, Pioneer 10 and 11, the Viking Mars landers, Voyager 1 and 2, Ulysses. You know, that's quite a bit of previous missions that they've had the luxury of, of having that uh, power source. And there is something, not sure if I missed it, you may have mentioned it, but there is something in the works, but the reliability doesn't seem to be there quite yet because according to planetary.org and a post by Casey Dreyer, he mentions that um, a Europa mission is has rejected the use of these advanced Stirling radioisotope generators uh, for solar panels because the they believe the technology is too too risky that they don't have the proven reliability to operate within the radiation environment of of Jupiter. So you know there's something coming along, but it's kind of hard for me to to see a this advanced Stirling radioisotope generator that has moving parts being uh, quite as safe as the multi-mission RTGs with no moving parts that just generate heat and through thermocouples generate electricity. Um, man, it's hard to beat no moving parts. And uh, having something that will last with the half-life of plutonium-238 is uh, 87 point some odd years. And uh, I think they're saying that the uh, Voyager 1 and 2 are probably still going to be in communication with Earth for another better than 10 years. Yeah, that's quite an extended mission. So, I don't know. We'll see what works out. It's good that they've got some production started. And I don't know for sure, but I have read where it's a joint venture between Department of Energy and NASA. And so that, one of the mentions that I saw there, hinted that it would be more precarious to budget cuts because a, a budget hit on either agency could affect the overall funding needed for that program and, and possibly sideline it. So it's complicated, it's sad, but then again, uh, who knows, maybe if we don't have enough plutonium-238 to do everything we want to do, we'll just be happy with uh, what we do every 10, 15, 20 years, maybe. Mark, I appreciate the correction. I, I, I wasn't exactly sure if if, uh, if Spirit and Opportunity had the RTG on board, and, and I, 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 I part of me said yes, part of me said no, and I appreciate the clarification. Thank you, but... Uh, uh, yeah, this is this is really a scary situation. Yeah, well, Spirit and Opportunity, their major power source is the solar panels. So, you know, you're right with the no, but I'm, I'm finding the hint on NASA's uh, website about them and being included. So I think it was just for a, a heat source only to, you know, keep, keep the electronics uh, slightly warmer than and not have quite the draw on solar that, that they would have. Okay, so the plutonium-238 issue will apparently continue to rear its ugly head, and as it continues to rear its head, we will continue to bring it up on the show as we've been doing for the last couple of years. So we've got the Space Junk Podcast, the Plutonium-238 Podcast, 
podcast has so many nicknames at this point. All right, so that brings us to the end of round number two. And we're now ready to move on to our third and final trip around the table. And for this one, we are going to more launches. And this is just going to be a rapid-fire launch roundup, shall we say? So let's start off with some other countries that you might not have heard of launching. And one of those, we talked about Japan last week. However, China is getting in on launches again. On today's date, September 23rd, 2013, China launched a weather satellite into a polar orbit, beginning a three-year mission providing Chinese meteorologists with imagery and data to incorporate into their weather forecasts. The spacecraft was a Fengyun 3C spacecraft aboard a Long March 4C rocket. It launched from the Taiwan launch base in northern China, and the launch occurred at 11.07 p.m. Eastern Time Sunday, or 3.07 GMT Monday, which was 11.07 a.m. Beijing time. So China now has a satellite in orbit, and North Korea may be next. Well, there's some reports coming out that, according to 38 North, which is a program of the U.S. Korea Institute at SAIS, wrote a post saying that there's a possibility that North Korea may be testing a long-range rocket. The test reportedly occurred between August 25th and August 30th using satellite imagery. They compared the launch test location and, among other things, noticed that there was a booster or a rocket of some sort that had moved locations. There is a launch pad that was occupied, and the green grass had suddenly become brown within five days. Uh, There's some great imagery on the 38 North site showing the difference. Now, they're not sure what this rocket actually was. Uh, it's about two and a half meters wide, nine to ten meters long, which is about eight feet wide and 30 or 33 feet long. So it's a long-range rocket, and it could be two things. It could be the second stage of the Unha-3, which is a, the vehicle that delivered the satellite of North Korea's back in December, or it could be an improved version of the rocket, or it could be a second or third stage of a larger rocket that might be in development. So at least with China, we knew what they were launching. We know it's a weather satellite that's going into a polar orbit. This is a test of a who-knows-what. So this is interesting and scary. Yeah, from from the uh, lovely annals of Here We Go Again, um, I, I don't know what to do anymore with 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 uh, North Korea. Do we go ahead and send you know Dennis Rodman over there with a rolled up newspaper and and just tell him to say bad dog? I mean you know I I, I don't know. Um, again, another act of uh, you know it, it's a provocative act and and um, as a, a friend of mine is is often you know, heard saying that this is just a, you know, the temper tantrum of a, of somebody who wants attention. And it's just sort of the way you really should treat it is pay no attention to it. Because then it becomes sort of, uh, you know, it becomes sort of pointless. It's sort of like, you know, letting your child yell and scream and cry and run around. Um, because it it didn't get the the gift that it wanted, or or you know it didn't get the piece of candy it wanted, and so 
it's a sort of the equivalent to you know throwing the the four or five year old upstairs in the room and just letting them cry it out. Um, but uh, I don't know if that's going to work in this instance. So I. With North Korea, I, I kind of sort of give up. I mean, it, it's it's like the report uh, over the uh, couple of weeks ago um, with Iran. They were talking about sending another monkey up there, and there was one report saying that they wanted to send a Persian cat up there. And I remember posting that on Twitter a while back ago and saying that, uh, you know, for you James Bond fans out there that happen to be listening to the program, you know, I don't think Ernst Stavro Blofit would be a uh, uh, very uh, appreciative of having a Persian cat in space, but um, uh, it's you know you have these um, these guys making these these interesting claims. And personally, I you know with Iran, I don't even think uh, they they sent the sent the monkey up there that they claim to have, have sent up. But um, with uh, uh, North Korea. And it's obvious they 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 tried they they were launching something before they tried to launch something before its satellite never made it, and uh, they might be trying the same kind of stunt again. So I don't know. This is you know they're playing an awfully dangerous game of one upsmanship, and hopefully they don't go ahead and throw that region into some sort of weird conflict either by doing this. Yeah, that's the difficult thing with these launches is that they're not just oh my gosh they may be launching a rocket. It's political. You know, even China for a while, it was a little bit political with their launch. It's now less so, and most people didn't even hear about the Chinese launch. But this is scary, you know, to some people. This is, they're thinking this could be a missile. This could be something potentially hazardous and dangerous. Whereas I see it as they're getting into the field of space. What they're launching is scary. You know, could be satellites that could be spy satellites. Who knows? But it's another player getting into the space field. And to me, it doesn't really matter what country it is. As long as they're not harming anybody by doing it, it's great to see more players getting into the field of space as, as crowded as low Earth orbit is getting. Well, um, it's just what kind of players are we talking about here and what's their purpose? That's what bothers me a little bit. But we'll proceed we'll watch we'll listen um good luck to china too and some of their endeavors they've got some ambitions so uh uh and they're they're going to be going it alone uh so it uh it'll be interesting to see what they they've got up their sleeve in the future exactly to north korea we'll see what you do to china best of luck because that was their seventh launch this year Alrighty then, speaking of launches, we have a follow-up to a story from last week about a launch pad. Gene? Yeah, this was kind of interesting. This is just a really quick uh, quick follow-up to the... Uh, I, and I, I really have to get some sort of special soap opera-like you know, organ music every time we we go to this because it, it it's almost appropriate to think about it for those of you who kind of remember the old soap operas with the you know and and now you know you know just like the sands of so go the days of our lives or something like that i kind of wish i had something here right now for that because it, it was so this, this it would be perfect well we talked a little bit about um the war going on for launch complex 39a uh there are two bids into uh into nasa 
uh, right now for for lease agreements for that particular launch pad. One is by Elon Musk's Space Exploration Technologies. Um, the other is by Jeff Bezos and his company, Blue Origin. Uh, they both have different plans on how they want to work with the pad. Uh, one plan, the the one by SpaceX, would give them exclusive rights to to launch from that launch pad. The other from Blue Origin saying that, well, we'll sublet pad 39A. If you're a company that wants to use this launch facility, we could go ahead, we could set it up for you, and uh, you would pay us a fee for using the pad. Well, there was an interesting uh, development in this whole little story, which is why, again, I, I kind of alluded to the soap opera music. I was looking at NASA Watch, I guess, uh, just a few days ago, and there was a post from uh, Keith Cowling on uh, uh, September 20th, um, basically quoting, uh, I guess it would be a SpaceX release of some sort. However, I have not been able to find that, at least uh, uh, the actual release as of yet. But I will, I'll just read it off because I'm, I'm guessing this is, this is a statement actually from, from SpaceX itself. Quote, SpaceX has nearly 50 missions on the manifest to launch over the proposed five-year lease period, and we can easily make use of the additional launch site, meaning uh, Launch Complex 39A. At the same time, we submitted the bid. SpaceX was unaware that any other parties had that. However, if awarded this limited-duration lease on Launch Complex 39A, SpaceX would be more than happy to support other commercial space pioneers at the pad and allow NASA to make use of the pad if need be, close quote. Well, this kind of sort of throws a monkey wrench into the whole thing uh, because the SpaceX plan, as I have alluded, uh, at least on the surface, looked like that SpaceX wanted to use it exclusively, most likely for Falcon Heavy, um, whereas the Blue Origin plan was to allow anybody really to, to launch off the pad that wanted to, and they would support those kind of services. Now SpaceX in turn is saying the same thing. So the plot thickens, and as you, as we reported here uh, last week, uh, we stated here that uh, uh, there is a, uh, a legal wrangling going on. Blue Origin has essentially retained counsel and said, you know, darn it, we want to go ahead and, and launch some sort of injunction here to make sure that, gosh darn it, that our, our plan is, is really, really heard. And I believe there's there's going to be some sort of uh, proceeding, I guess, in, in December uh, concerning this. But again, that kind of sort of leaves uh, the U.S. taxpayer hanging on to launch Complex 39A a little while longer. And um, NASA was hoping to go ahead and release Pad 39A in October, uh, October 1st to be precise, which I believe is the official end for the fiscal year in, in government. And um, uh, so it looks like we're going to hang on to this this, uh, this historic site a little while longer. Um, and uh, it, to me too, to me still, this, this launch pad with so much history on it, 
um, is actually considered now surplus and and unneeded. And there was a report, uh, I guess, um, uh, through the NASA uh, Inspector General's office this past week about uh, NASA hanging on to facilities it no longer needs um, to the tune of $24 million a year. So this is, and, and, and it, in all honesty, it's not NASA's fault that they're hanging on to these facilities. It's because NASA really doesn't know what to do with them because, quite frankly, they really don't know what they need yet because we don't have an idea of what the heck we're doing in the human exploration side, whether it's just simply to support the International Space Station uh, we do have Orion uh, waiting in the wings, and we do have the SLS waiting in the wings. But again, there aren't clear-cut purposes for those two vehicles articulated either. So, you know, NASA's unsure what it, what its needs really are, and that's why it's kind of sort of hanging on to some of these facilities. Um, and unless a clear picture of what its needs are for the future they're going to hang on to, to the facilities they need to hang on to. But right now, Pad 39A, because we're only going to be launching the space launch system, um, predicted once every, what, once every, what, four years, which to me is kind of ridiculous. Um, we don't need launch pad 39A. And it's, it's kind of sad to admit that, but it's true. So we're going to go ahead and try to, send this off to the highest bidder and and right now those two those two bidders are you know button heads and now this new development here really kind of changes changes the complexion of the whole thing spacex is saying they're going to do the same thing that blue origin wants to do which is to go ahead and and basically sublet the pad they'll allow the same thing they're so 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 says spacex so it's <laughs> Here we go, boys and girls. Fasten your seatbelts. You know, put your tray tables in their upright positions. This is going to be a bumpy ride, and it's going to be an interesting one to watch. So I remember seeing this story come out, and I, I'll admit I was a little taken aback at how fast that was. That they were like, "Okay, yeah, sure," but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's at least the launch pad is getting used and will be getting used because I know there's a bunch of launch pads that in a lot of places at NASA that supposedly aren't being used and are causing, you know, a bunch of surplus money cost to maintain them. But still, you know, it's a iconic launch pad and I honestly I think it might be better if one company doesn't have exclusive rights to it. Well yeah, I mean we don't know what new vehicles are coming down the pike in the future. And I don't know how long this lease really would be. Um I'd have to go back and and, and look and see how long the company, whoever wins it is going to have it. And also, uh, since it's being held in, um, I guess, what's called shuttle-ready state, meaning that it's being uh, serviced so that, that it uh, stays in shuttle-ready condition, meaning if we were going to fly an orbiter off of it, you could theoretically do it. Of course, we all know that you know today you can't do that if, even if you wanted to. Um, it should be interesting to see what part of these facilities are actually going to be usable to something like, you know, Falcon Heavy or to, to something like, uh, uh, heck, even, a, you know, a Falcon 9 or, um, you know, a Delta, a Delta vehicle with, say, a, uh, 
you know, a, a CST 100 or a, a dream chaser on top of it. See if they would, they'd be towing it out to that pad or not. Uh, so again, it's a great business opportunity and Sawyer, again, I'd rather see the, as you pointed out, I'd rather see the launch pad actually used. Um, but it's, it's still going to be wild to see how this, this battle is, is, there's just something wrong though, you know, it, it, it's like fighting for the rights of the Washington monument or something. I don't know. It in my eyes, but, uh, because of the, the historic significance of it, but, um, it's, it's still good that the facility is actually going to be used for what it's supposed to be used for. And that is to get vehicles off, off world and onto, uh, onto uh, uh, bigger and better places, we hope. So, again, let's keep our f- seatbelts fastened and, and see where this little battle goes uh, for uh, for use of the pad. It should be interesting to watch. And for 20 years or so, at least they've got the use of it for tours from the visitor complex. <laughs> oh, God. That's very, very true. Yeah, you know, again... I just don't want it. I, as much as I want it to, to to recognize the history of it, I also don't want it to become sort of the proverbial old war horse that gets trotted out to for everybody to just to point at and say, "Wow!" I, as Sawyer indicated there, Mark, I'd rather see it being used for what it's what it's supposed to be used for, and that's getting vehicles off world rather than just some sort of you know tourist attraction. Exactly, but for now, someone's going to be taking a tour at it, whether it be visitors at Kennedy Space Center or any of these other companies, so we'll find out what happens to it. And with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who visited us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, G. McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer. And just real quick, for those of you who want to dig in, there are not one, but two NASA socials coming up. Uh, the, the first one I'm going to mention is, uh, for, uh, for Maven, uh, go to, uh, to, uh, the NASA website and, and, uh, get that, get that moving. The registration opens up, um, or opened on September 17th and closes this coming Friday. So by the time this, this show comes out on Wednesday, you got a couple of di- you got a couple of days, so so get your um, get your uh, your your uh, your stuff in there really really quick. There's another one opening up for um, what is called the global global precipitation measurement mission uh, for uh, October eighth, and that's going to be out of uh, NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Registration for that is still open right now, but I believe that closes on September 30th. So you got time for that. So there are two NASA social events coming up, and uh, so jump on board. If you haven't been to one of these things, folks, you got to go. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. I'm ready. I'll be packing my bags. (laughs) All right. We all packed our bags and we're ready to go, and hopefully you will travel back to listen to us next time. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.